On the evening of September 23, 1992, Dale Dinwiddie, a 23-year-old graduate student, attended a U2 concert in Columbia, South Carolina with friends. Following the concert, they went to Five Points, a popular bar area for college students. At around 1 a.m., Dale became separated from her friends in a big crowd. Approximately 30 minutes later, she was spotted leaving the bar, heading toward the intersection of Hardin and Green. She was never seen again, and no trace of her has ever been found. It's been more than 31 years since Dale vanished, and investigators are still searching for the person responsible. Hey everyone, welcome back to Detective Perspective. My name is Derek Lavasser. I'm a licensed private investigator and former police detective, and each week I'll be covering an unsolved case in story format. I'll then give you my perspective on the investigation and provide contact information for the individuals or organizations connected to the case so that if you have any leads or tips, you can contact them directly and maybe you can help solve a case. And if you're someone who's interested in true crime, specifically unsolved cases, and you would like to hear my opinion on those investigations, please consider subscribing whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. Okay, so Dale Dimwitty. Uh, this case, it's an older case, and we're not the first to cover it. I believe there's a couple podcasts that have highlighted this case, uh, but it's still unsolved. It's still unsolved, and it happened uh, a very long time ago, I believe thirty over 30 years ago. And uh, this case is one of those situations where there, there is a potential suspect in this case who's been arrested on other murder cases. But for me, as a father of two daughters, and uh, they're young right now, they're 10 and 7, but at one point they're going to be in college. And I, as a parent, I like to remind myself of these situations so that I can be uh, reminded of the world we live in. And I think with true crime, obviously some of it is for entertainment. You, you have to acknowledge that. But I think there's a real opportunity as true crime consumers to become more educated, uh, more informed about these types of crimes, and therefore empowered. Uh, empowered to understand that this type of situation can happen to anyone. And by understanding some of the, not only the means and not only the MO of these individuals when they carry out these crimes, but also an understanding of who they target. Right. By understanding that you can better protect yourself and also the people you care about and therefore you are empowered. So I do think that should be the driving force behind why you consume this type of content, because when you leave it, you're better prepared for what's out there. All right. Now that we've covered that, let's dive into this week's case. Dale Boxley Dinwiddie was born on April 12, 1969, to parents Dan and Jean. She grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, alongside her brother Drew, who was seven years younger. Dale's family described her as a sweet and quiet girl who always stood up for herself and others. In 1991, Dale graduated from Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia with a degree in art history. 
Her classmates thought highly of her, finding her to be passionate, kind, and destined to do great things. Following her graduation, Dale returned to her family home in Columbia to attend graduate classes at the University of South Carolina. Her ultimate goal was to study architecture at Clemson University. The Dinwiddie family lived in the Forest Hills neighborhood, not far from the Five Points District, a lively area near the University of South Carolina. In 1992, it was filled with restaurants, bars, and boutiques. Greenville News reported that Five Points was within walking distance from Dale's home, but the neighborhoods along the way were sometimes risky. For this reason, if Dale was out in Five Points, she always caught rides home with friends or called her parents to pick her up instead of walking alone. On the evening of September 23, 1992, 23-year-old Dale went to a U2 concert at the Williams Bryce Stadium in Columbia with around a dozen friends. A friend picked her up, while her other friends took separate cars to the concert. Dale, who was very petite at 5 feet tall and less than 100 pounds, was dressed casually in an olive green long sleeve shirt, faded blue jeans, a bright blue L.L. Bean jacket tied around her waist, and new white running shoes. After the concert, which ended around 11.15 p.m., Dale and her friends headed to Five Points to continue the fun. They ended up at one of their favorite bars, Jungle Gems. The place was crowded, and multiple patrons later recalled seeing Dale talking to various people. At around 1 a.m., Dale and her friends got separated in the crowd, and she started looking for them. When she couldn't find them, she briefly went outside Jungle Gyms, but her friends weren't there either. She spoke to one of the doormen for around 15 to 20 minutes. He didn't think she was drunk and said she seemed to be in good spirits, sipping on a beer, speaking coherently. He offered to call her a cab, but she declined, believing her friends would return soon. Detectives later explained to the Post and Courier that they think Dale's friends left one by one in their own cars, each assuming someone else was giving her a ride home. The doorman watched as Dale left the bar, went down Harden Street in search of her friends, then returned to Jungle Gyms for a brief time. At around 1.30 a.m., she left on foot heading north on Harden Street toward Green Street, appearing to be in a hurry. No one saw her after that. At around 6.15 a.m., Dale's dad, Dan, woke up. According to Greenville News, it was his usual routine to go upstairs and fetch their dog from 16-year-old Drew's room. That's when he noticed that the lights in Dale's room were still on and her radio was playing. He peeked inside the room and saw that her bed appeared to be untouched. Dan was surprised to see this. Dale hadn't mentioned plans to stay out all night and if she needed a ride home, she always called. He woke up his wife and they began calling Dale's friends to check if she had stayed with any of them, but she hadn't. They reached out to everyone they could think of, but no one had any information about her whereabouts. At around 8.30 a.m., the Dinwiddies contacted the Columbia City Police to report their daughter missing. The police had several questions to address right away. Did Dale attempt to walk home after realizing her friends weren't around, and did she injure herself along the way? Did she decide to leave on her own and start a new life somewhere else? Or was something more nefarious at play like an abduction? The investigation was tough right from the beginning because back in 1992, there was no security cameras or cell phones with cameras. This meant that the police had a lot of work ahead of them. Police searched all the streets, parking lots, and ditches between Jungle Jim's and Dale's house, but they found no trace of her. When talking to Dale's family and friends, the police learned that it was highly unlikely for Dale to walk home alone at 1.30 a.m. or to get into a stranger's car. 
They mentioned that she'd more than likely call for a ride or wait for a friend to pick her up because she was very cautious around strangers. She wouldn't even take a taxi alone. Additionally, running away didn't fit her character. It was entirely out of the ordinary for her. All of this led police to theorize that Dale had been kidnapped after leaving Jungle Gems. However, they weren't certain about the exact location of the abduction. Detectives later told the Deck podcast that they had talked to many people who were in Five Points when Dale went missing. Despite a lot of people being there that night, no one reported seeing Dale after 1.30 a.m. This made police believe that whatever happened to Dale probably didn't occur in the Five Points area because if it had, someone would have witnessed or heard something. Detectives think it's more than likely that she left a crowded bar district and was kidnapped someplace away from the crowds in an area where there were no witnesses. Because of the very few clues they had, detectives believed that Dale's kidnapping was a quote, carefully planned abduction. If someone had taken her out of the spur of the moment, they probably would have left some clues behind. Once it became clear that Dale had likely been kidnapped, the Richland County Sheriff's Department, FBI, and the South Carolina State Law Enforcement Division, also known as SLED, all got involved in the investigation. When Dale's friends realized she was missing, they went back to Five Points to talk to people and distribute pictures. They even reenacted her disappearance to try to understand what happened. The following day, dozens of high school and college students went around the city with posters and flyers showing Dale's photo. Soon, the national media started reporting on Dale Dinwiddie's kidnapping. On September 26, the police announced a $2,500 reward for any information that could help locate Dale. Her father, Dan, shared with the state, She's a very responsible person and was just out with friends that night. This is very uncharacteristic. She's always been on time. She is shy, very much a homebody. This is every parent's nightmare. You can't imagine what we're going through. Four days later, the Dinwiddies held a news conference where they pleaded for their daughter's safe return. On October 2nd, the police provided an update, saying they were actively following up on leads, which had reached about 300. They had interviewed over 100 people, but had no new information to share. The investigation continued, and within two months, the police had received more than 800 leads and interviewed around 250 people. Detectives told the state, quote, We don't have any way to eliminate anybody. We can't tell you she's dead. We can't tell you she's alive. She's just missing. Now, I want to weigh in here really quick because you can relate to this, right? This is a situation where you don't know if you're dealing with a kidnapping. You don't know if you're dealing with a homicide. So all possibilities are still on the table. At this point, you're just trying to locate her. And I know this might sound a little insensitive, but as an investigator, you just want to find her dead or alive. Because if, if she's alive, you can start to backtrack to find out how she got in that position and who's responsible for it. Same thing if she's dead. If, if you find her body, you can start to use the forensic evidence at the crime scene to try and identify who killed her. But at this point, it's just a matter of what happened to her. Did she run away on her own? Is she off with someone that she's seeing? Or has she been taken against her will and she's still somewhere right now hoping that we find her? It's, it's a really difficult situation to be in because as an investigator, how can you investigate a case when you don't even know what the crime is or if there's even a crime? And regardless of whether there's a crime or not, like the detective said, how can you eliminate anyone when you don't even know what you're dealing with? Now, Dale's parents were struggling with their daughter's disappearance. Many nights they couldn't even sleep, worrying that they might miss a crucial phone call. 
Sometimes Jean visited the police station in the middle of the night just to talk to the officers. During the daytime hours, they did whatever they could to help the case. Dan took it upon himself to drive to the state line and put up posters at rest stops and gas stations along the way. He also sought out witnesses who were in five points on the night of Dale's disappearance and convinced them to speak with the police. Drew, Dale's younger brother, later shared with the state that his parents were so anxious about losing him too that they made him carry a pager and a cell phone for several months. Eventually, they eased off and allowed Drew to live his own life, but it was really hard for them. In the following years, various agencies worked tirelessly to investigate Dale's disappearance. They pursued numerous leads, although many turned out to be false. One such lead came from a convicted drug dealer who claimed to be present when three men kidnapped Dale. The man hoped to strike a deal with the police, offering information in exchange for assistance with his 20-year prison sentence. The police were open to this offer because the tipster named three individuals who had long been considered prime suspects. According to the tipster, these three people had taken Dale, killed her, and then placed her body in the trunk of a car, which was then submerged in a private property lake in Lower Richland. Divers did search that lake and retrieved a car with a crane, but there was no body found inside. The tipster had been lying the whole time. Despite these setbacks, detectives remained determined. They conducted extensive searches, including digging, draining lakes, deploying cadaver dogs in various locations, tearing out a section of a home floor after new tenants reported a foul smell, and even consulted with psychics. They explored every avenue to locate Dale, but unfortunately, no new evidence emerged. In 1997, on the fifth anniversary of Dale's disappearance, the Dinwiddie spoke with the state and expressed their enduring hope that Dale might still be out there somewhere. Gene said, quote, I run to the mailbox every day to see if there's a letter. Or if there's a phone call, I think it's maybe Dale calling to hear my voice or see if I'm all right. Both Gene and Dan discussed how difficult it was not knowing what happened to Dale. Gene said, quote, It's like a circle. You just go over and over and over. You never get out of the maze. The investigation continued without any major updates until October of 2000, when Columbia police learned about Reynaldo Rivera, a serial killer who had been arrested in Georgia for a rape and attempted murder of an 18-year-old woman named Chrissa Lee. Now, real quick, I normally wouldn't use a survivor's real name, but in this particular case, Chrissa Lee has openly discussed her experience with the media, so I think she would be okay with it. Now, according to court records, after his arrest, Reynaldo admitted to attacking Chrissa Lee and also confessed to raping, sodomizing, and murdering Tabitha Bosdell in June of 2000 and 21-year-old Army Sergeant Marnie Glista in September of 2000, both who were from Georgia. He also confessed to killing two women in South Carolina in 1999, 18-year-old Tiffany Wilson and 17-year-old Melissa Dingus. Once news of Ronaldo's arrest became public, approximately 30 women came forward to report that Ronaldo had approached them in the past. Detectives told the state that they found a pattern in these encounters. Ronaldo would approach the women in parking lots, often from inside a car or a van, asking for directions. He would then steer the conversation toward his work as a photographer or his interest in starting a business. Eventually, he would ask them if they've ever considered modeling and offer to take photos on the spot or suggesting to go somewhere else to try on different outfits. Detectives noticed that the victims, including the 30 women who managed to escape encounters with Reynaldo, all shared similar traits. They were all petite, slender females with shoulder-length blondish hair. 
police departments across the country began to investigate whether Ronaldo could be connected to cases in their areas. The Columbia Police Department also looked into Reynaldo as a possible suspect in Dale's disappearance. She did fit the profile of his preferred victims, petite, slender females with shoulder-length, blondish hair. Things looked even more promising when they discovered that Reynaldo attended the University of South Carolina at the time of Dinwiddie's disappearance. Reynaldo was questioned multiple times, and during these interviews, he admitted to raping many women in the D.C. area and in South Carolina. However, he consistently denied committing any murders before 1999, which included denying involvement in Dale's case. All right, so let me weigh in on this. Reynaldo Rivera, I've heard the name before. He's obviously been connected to a lot of cases. And you'll find in these situations with serial killers that either they'll admit to way more cases than they actually committed because they want to build up their, I guess, their their legacy in their eyes, right? Or you'll have them downplay a lot of what they've done for, for whatever reason. They're trying to minimize how dangerous or how psychotic they really were, right? They try to justify it by saying, oh, it was only a couple people. So you usually have one end of the spectrum or the other. With Reynaldo's willingness to admit to so many different cases, to so many different investigations, as much as I don't like this guy and you shouldn't believe anything he says— it may be true that he didn't commit any murders or or take Dale uh, if it occurred before 1999. Now, I guess I could do more research into Reynaldo to try to figure out what the significance is of 1999, but maybe that's when he flipped the switch. Maybe he had been building up towards this and he distinctly remembers that after 1999, he started to go on this, this killing spree and that's why that year is so significant for him. So he could be telling the truth. If I, if you made me guess at this point, I would say that more than likely there's probably some validity to what he's saying as far as when he started conducting these types of crimes. Now, even though I might be right, it's important to note that to this day, there is still a strong suspicion that Reynaldo may have other unidentified victims, but he has never officially been linked to any other disappearances or murders, which obviously includes Dale's. Now, years went by, and there were no significant breakthroughs in Dale's case. In August of 2012, the police offered a $20,000 reward and shared an age-progressed photo of how Dale might look at 43 years old, hoping it might generate some new leads. Detectives explained that they lacked enough evidence to determine if Dale was alive or not, but they remained determined to solve the case. Dale's parents also addressed the public, passionately asking anyone with information to come forward. Jean said, quote, I don't know that Dale is safe or where she is. I don't really think that someone from Mars came here and took her, but someone did. 20 years after the abduction of my child, I still cannot rest easy because I don't know where she is. Jean added, quote, we ask that even if you will not help us solve this crime, would you please let us know how to find Dale? At the end of their plea, the Dinwiddies shared their personal phone numbers in case someone was hesitant to contact the police. While some people did call, none of the information led to a breakthrough in the case. In 2018, the Richland County Sheriff talked to the state as it marked the 25th anniversary of Dale's disappearance. He mentioned that Dale's parents continued to contact authorities regularly even in the middle of the night. He expressed that he could see the pain in their eyes and hear it in their voices, but said the Dinwiddies were still focused 
which motivated the investigators. Dale's brother, Drew, also spoke to the state, emphasizing their family's strong desire to find Dale and get answers. He assured that they had not forgotten about her and would continue their search. Detectives had reviewed over a thousand tips. In addition to the Columbia police investigating the case, the FBI, along with state investigators, continued to check new leads every month. They also looked into captured serial killers or kidnappers with ties to Columbia and compared the DNA from unidentified bodies to Dale's DNA. In the fall of 2021, a potential lead emerged when rumors circulated in Columbia about the police having a person of interest in Dale's disappearance. Fitz News reported that a woman had reported a sexual assault to SLED, again, that's the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. She mentioned that the man who allegedly assaulted her said that she reminded him of Dale Dinwiddie. Now, I'm not going to mention this man's name here because charges against him were later dropped, but his name is known to the public, so if you're starting to research Dale's case after this, it may pop up. Now, even with that being the case, it's important to note that police investigating the sexual assault in the fall of 2021 explored the possibility of this man's involvement in Dale's disappearance. Initially, it did appear to be promising because this man lived in Columbia when Dale went missing and his home was close to the Dinwiddie's residence as well. More than that, during the time of Dale's disappearance, he was known to seek the company of younger women and would frequently visit the Five Points area. He also loved jungle gyms and was good friends with one of the bartenders who was working the night Dale vanished. But ultimately, the police were unable to establish a connection between Dale and this person, and it turned out to be another rumor that raised the hopes of solving Dale's case, but did not lead to anything that broke it open. In May of 2022, the lead detective working on Dale's case talked to the Deck podcast. He expressed his strong belief that Dale was taken by a person she didn't know and that that person likely killed her. He also thinks that the plan the kidnapper or kidnappers had that night was well thought out. Only a few months later, on September 24th, the Columbia Police Department released a statement regarding the 30th anniversary of Dale's disappearance. The statement included a quote from Dale's parents who said, quote, our family and friends still hope and pray each day that someone will come forward with information that will lead us to Dale. Unfortunately, this is the most recent update we have in Dale's case. Her disappearance remains unsolved, making it the oldest missing persons case in Columbia, South Carolina. Okay, I'm going to get into my perspective here, and it's, it's not going to be a long one because a, a many years have gone by, and I think at this point there's a couple things we can take away from this. First and foremost, I, I don't know what investigators have in this case, but this is one of those investigations where it's been 30 years, uh, you haven't been able to solve it, and at this point, more than likely, as, as Dale's parents said, this would just be to find her body. And if there's any information that you have in those case files that could be useful to the public, now would be the time to release it. Now would be the time to put that information out there. Yes, you can re redact the names of individuals who haven't been charged with anything or and you want to obviously keep their privacy. But if there's any piece of information in that file that could help jog someone's memory, now is the time to do it. Not only for the case itself, but most importantly, for Dale's family. They need those answers before it's too late, before one of her parents pass away. They have gone through hell and back and they deserve to know what happened to their daughter. Even if that means ruining 
the overall case if it potentially went to trial, which let's be honest at this point, highly unlikely. Now, as far as what happened that night, your guess is as as good as mine. I'm on the outside looking in just like you guys. I don't have access to the case files. I wasn't working on the ground when this happened. But one statement that the detective made throughout this story that I found interesting was the fact that he believes uh, this was well thought out. Yeah, that's possible. It could have been this thought out plan. But to be honest with you, I don't know if that's the case. There's no way that this individual could have known Dale would be alone that night. This was a series of unfortunate circumstances that led to this opportunity for someone to grab her. And there's there's no one in the world that could have known this was going to happen. Dale didn't even know it was going to happen. Now, I will say, based on what the bouncer said that she left kind of in a hurry, it does make me wonder if she could have been going around the corner to meet someone uh, that was going to potentially pick her up? Could this be a situation where her her attacker you know, was someone she knew? That's possible. And, and if that's the case, this person, this offender, uh, may have picked her up with this malicious intent or could have picked her up under, a, you know, I guess, a good intention, but then things went bad throughout the night. That's also possible. But if you made me choose, I think it's likely that she was walking home Uh, She was trying to get back to her place. She couldn't find a ride. And whoever this person was saw a victim of opportunity. They were prowling the area of the five points, knowing that there were going to be young females out there potentially drinking. And there was a hope that he would see one of them alone. And when they saw Dale, they approached her, maybe trying to be someone that she would be okay with taking a ride from. She might have quickly told that person she wanted nothing to do with them. But because of her stature and her weight, this individual got out of the car, was able to overpower her and took her anyways. But I don't think necessarily that because they haven't solved this case, it automatically indicates that this was well thought out or planned. It just means that the guy got lucky. And I do understand where the investigators coming from all these years, no witnesses, no forensic evidence to tie back to the offender. I get it. But again, this could be a situation where The offender decided to attack Dale because those obstacles weren't present. She was far enough away from any other public establishments where she would be seen or heard by anyone. And if the person got out quick out of their car, and we're just assuming they had a car, they could have grabbed her, uh, rendered her unconscious, and drove off. And unless you knew exactly where the struggle occurred, it wouldn't leave much evidence for investigators. So here we are 30 years later, and we still don't know what happened to Dale. Uh, Does that mean we just stopped talking about her case? Of course not. We're going to continue fighting for her and her family. And you never know who's going to hear or see one of these episodes. And maybe they've known something all along. And just something that was said during this episode triggers something inside of them to come forward. I don't know. Or or maybe something is, is seen or heard by someone who was there that night that triggers a memory of theirs. I know that the deck covered this as well, and I hope that many more podcasts cover it going forward. But I know there's a lot of people listening and watching right now, so maybe someone out there can help. And in order to do that, I'm going to recap this episode really quickly. So again, Dale's disappearance occurred on September 24th, 1992. She was only 5 feet tall and weighed 98 pounds. She had light brown hair with blonde highlights, brown eyes, and dimples. She was last seen wearing an olive green long sleeve shirt, faded blue jeans, 
a bright blue L.L. Bean jacket tied around her waist, and new white running shoes. So after hearing all this, if you have any information, please call the Midlands Crime Stoppers at 888-274-6372. And remember, all callers can remain anonymous. And lastly, I want to send my thoughts out to Dale's parents, Dan and Jean, and also her brother, Drew. Uh, I'm inspired by your fight and determination for your daughter and your sister after all these years. And I just want you to know that we're here to support you. You're not alone. And we are in this fight with you. Everyone stay safe out there. I'll see you next week.